Today I do want to continue our series and actually close out our series called Whatever It Takes. Over this month we've been talking about doing whatever it takes personally and as a church to reach one more person with the gospel of Jesus, with the good news that God loves people, that he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for them on a cross, and that having paid the penalty for our sin, Jesus rose from the dead and is alive and willing to forgive all of their sin who put their faith in him. And so this is a good message that we have the obligation and the privilege of sharing. And we are willing to do as a church whatever it takes short of sinning to reach one more person with the gospel. That includes changing our methods, dying to our personal preferences, if it helps us relate the gospel in a way that people can understand. We will never compromise the word of God or compromise or water down the teachings of scripture and the gospel, but we are willing to do whatever it takes to help people understand it and relate to it. Several years ago, I went on my first mission trip to Brazil, and uh, the, the church was trying to help plant a church in Brazil, and so the local pastor on that first full day on the field said, we're going to give you all some flyers in Portuguese, and we're going to put you out at street corners, and we want you to pass out these flyers to all the people in the cars when they stop for red lights. And so they put me off on this major intersection. And every time the light would turn red and cars would stop, I would go up and down the line and they would roll down their window and I would give them a flyer. Well, I don't speak Portuguese. And so I was already at a disadvantage, feeling quite nervous. It's not something I do. I don't typically stand at street corners passing out literature uh, at red lights. And then the police show up. And the police officer doesn't speak English, I don't speak Portuguese, and I am sweating bullets. I'm just seeing now the church bailing me out of a Brazilian jail uh, because I've done something wrong here on this street corner. And all I know to do is hand him two pieces of paper. One was the flyer that I was distributing to the cars written in Portuguese and my personal testimony of salvation that had been translated into Portuguese. So I gave him those two sheets of paper, and he read them. And then he said, okay. He started stopping traffic so I could go up and down and not be worried about being run over. For an hour and a half, the police officer stayed with me and stopped traffic so that I could tell people about Jesus. You know what I discovered? That Portuguese flyer and my testimony that had been translated into Portuguese became a bridge so that I could say what I needed to say, so that I could share the gospel in a way that other people could relate to and understand. And here at Fort Caroline Baptist Church, we believe that we are called to build bridges from our culture to the bloody cross and empty tomb of Jesus, that we meet people where they are and we talk to them in a language they can understand so they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want to tear down those barriers that keep people from understanding this wonderful message, and we want to build a bridge to get people from where they are to the gospel so that they can put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, of course, we live in Jacksonville, Florida. We know all about bridges. We are the river city. We have eight major bridges that cross waterways. Seven of those cross the St. John's River. The other crosses the uh, Trout River. We've got the Dames Point Bridge, which is not far from us, the Matthews Bridge, the Hart Bridge, the Main Street Bridge, the Acosta Bridge, Fuller Warren, the Buckman Bridge, and of course the Trout River. So you can't go very far in Jacksonville without having to cross a bridge. In fact, when Don and I moved here, 
My mother said, oh, Jacksonville has a lot of bridges. I don't like crossing bridges. But what I discovered is when we had our first child and her grandchild, she overcame her fear of bridges, and she came down to Jacksonville quite often. You know, as a church, maybe we're fearful of crossing cultural bridges in order to relate the gospel to people. Sometimes when a church starts changing its methods to be more effective and relevant to its community, people get nervous. They're nervous that we're compromising the word of God. But if you've been here long, you know that's not me. Sometimes people get nervous because it gets them out of their comfort zone whenever we start changing methods. That's not the way it was when I was growing up. That's not the way we've always done it. And so people get uncomfortable. But I believe that there is no one who got out of his comfort zone more than Jesus Christ when he stepped out of glory, came into time, became a man, lived with us, became one of us, spoke our language so that we could understand how much God loves us. And he went to a cross just so that we could be reached with the good news of the Father's love. So if he's willing to do that, we ought to be willing to do whatever it takes, short of sinning, of course, to reach one more person with the gospel. Now, missionaries have always built bridges from the culture in which they were serving to the gospel. Missionaries have always taken people where they are and then found a way to relate them and bring them to understand the gospel. We see even in the book of Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul doing that. I'm going to take you today to Acts 17 verses 16 through 34. All the verses and the notes today will be on the screen. And I've even given you an outline today in your worship folder so that you can take some notes of your own or you can download our church app and use that. But I want to talk to you today about engaging the culture from Acts chapter 17 beginning with verses 16 through 34. Because our conviction as a church is we must build a bridge from the culture to the cross and empty tomb of Jesus. And Paul shows us five principles of doing that. Five principles of engaging the culture, of building a bridge from the culture to the gospel. The first principle would be this. Allow the culture to speak to you before you speak to it. Allow the culture to speak to you before you speak to it. If you want to relate the gospel in a way people understand, you've got to know where they're coming from. What are their thoughts? What are their beliefs? What are their biases? What are their backgrounds? What is their education? What are their spiritual ideas? What are their philosophies? And the more you know about a person or the more you know about a culture, the better you're going to be able to speak in a way that they can relate to. And Paul does that. Paul allowed the culture of Athens... To speak to him before he spoke to it. Paul is in the city of Athens, that ancient Greek city that had once been the pinnacle of Greek culture. Still, even in Paul's day in the first century, uh, was known for its philosophy and for its religious observances and many idols and temples that populated the city of Athens. Paul's by himself. He doesn't have any Christian friends with him. He's waiting for Timothy and for Silas to join him in Athens. But while he's there by himself, he just takes a tour of this beautiful city. And it says in verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
Paul's not just in Athens as a tourist. Paul is in Athens as a truth teller. Paul is living there as a witness of the good news of God's love and the need for people to turn from their false beliefs and put their faith in Jesus. And so as he walks through the city of Athens and he sees on every corner temple after temple and statue after statue and idol after idol, it provokes his spirit. Literally, it agitates him. Uh, it, It brings up all sorts of heartbreak to him because he sees these people created in the image of God not knowing the one true living God, not worshiping in truth and in the spirit of God, but being given over to superstition and idolatry. And he's brokenhearted that these people have not come to hear and to believe the best news the world's ever heard, the news that Jesus is God's son. And so he's provoked in his spirit because he sees the city is full of idols. Literally, the the city is swamped with idols. It was said it is easier to find a god in Athens than a man in Athens because the city was so populated with statues to pagan gods. In fact, the city of Athens was notorious for the Parthenon, for the Acropolis, for all of its uh, temple and idol worship, and Paul is burdened. And I wonder if we have not taken the time to look around us in our culture right here in Jacksonville, Florida. We pride ourselves on being in the Bible Belt. But anyone who looks at society today knows that America today is more like pagan Athens in the first century. We are more deluded and deceived in our spiritual understanding than ever before. And this is not a knock on our country, but America is no longer a Christian nation. And when I say that, I'm just saying the majority of people in America no longer are centered in a personal belief that Jesus Christ is their personal Lord and Savior, having turned from their sin and placed their trust in Him. The overwhelming majority of our neighbors do not believe this. And I wonder, does that provoke anything within us? Beyond a yawn? Does that not stir us up to say, God, we want our neighbors to know the truth of Jesus. We want our neighbors to know who you are so that they can live out the purpose that you've created them for and live in a beautiful relationship with you. So allow the culture to speak to you before you speak to it. The second principle we discover in verses 17 through 21, I would put it this way, be willing to dialogue with people of different beliefs. Be willing to dialogue with people of different beliefs. You see that in verses 17 through 21. It says, so he, this is Paul, so he reasoned in the synagogue. So the word reason means to dialogue. He's having a conversation with people. It's question and answer time. He's not just preaching. He's actually talking and asking questions and responding to people. And he starts in the synagogue with the Jews because Paul was a Jew. And so he goes into the synagogue and he reasons with them from their Old Testament how that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament promises of the prophets of God. He's the Messiah we've been looking for. Jesus' death on a bloody cross is the fulfillment of all those sacrificial lambs that have been slaughtered throughout Hebrew history. And so he reasons with them in the synagogue. 
And he also reasons in the synagogue with devout persons. These are Gentiles who were drawn to the monotheism of Judaism. And they are proselytes to Judaism. And so he's talking to them too about who Jesus is. But he doesn't just stay in the synagogue. Notice verse 17. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Witnessing of the truth of Jesus was just a way of life for Paul. Even in the marketplace, the Agora in the city of Athens, he is there talking to anyone that he bumps into, anyone he gets in a conversation with. He's going to find a way to direct them from where they are to the good news of Jesus Christ. I was talking to our friend Jeff Shattuck in London, England, and I was telling him what I was preaching this week, and Jeff said, Ricky, if you want to know how to share Jesus with someone, just listen, and they'll tell you. And I thought about that. He's right. You, you listen to a person, get to know that person, find out what they're dealing with, and you will find a platform from there to, in which to uh, share the gospel. If you're talking to a school teacher, it's easy to talk about the importance of truth and how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Don't you want to know the truth about the God who loves you? If you're talking to someone who's concerned about their physical health, it's not hard to change that subject from physical to spiritual health and how Jesus is the great physician. And he heals not only body, but he wants to heal us in our soul and make us right with God. If you're talking to someone who's concerned about world peace or racial reconciliation, it's not hard to talk to them about how Jesus is God's son who came on a mission to reconcile us to God and to one another. So take people where they are. And Paul does that. Paul, recognizing the idolatry of the Athenian culture, uses that to build a bridge from where they are to the cross and empty tomb of Jesus. Notice he continues in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Some people just said, he's a babbler. Literally in the Greek, it's seed picker. It's a picture of a hen pecking seeds off the ground. And these skilled intellectuals are saying, that Christian stuff you're talking about, you're just taking bits and pieces from other religions and you don't even know what you're talking about. Others said, no, I don't know if he's a seed picker. I don't know if he's a babbler, but it sounds like he's giving us two new gods. He's saying something about somebody named Jesus and somebody named resurrection <laughs> because Jesus and the resurrection was the topic he was talking about. They didn't understand what the resurrection was. And by the way, you think the Athenians didn't understand the message of the gospel? The majority of your friends don't understand the message of the gospel. The majority of your friends think it's weird that we think about someone actually rising from the dead and having the ability to forgive us of our sins. So, verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This is the hill in the city of Athens. It used to be the seat of the Athenian Supreme Court. Uh, there is still a ruling council that meets in that area. So, so they take him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It's Luke's way of saying, 
No, Paul's not the babbler. The Athenians were the babblers. They loved to just talk about these things. And so Paul took advantage of their curiosity to share the gospel. He, he was always ready to have a gospel conversation. And you and I need to be ready because if you're ready, I guarantee you, God will give you someone in your pathway that you can talk about Jesus to. I promise you, the opportunity will come. So be willing to dialogue with people of different beliefs. Get out of your holy huddle here at church and talk to people. Listen to them. Dialogue with their questions. And look for opportunities to relate the gospel in a way they'll understand. The third principle we find in verses 22 and 23. And that is find common ground with those who believe differently than you. Find common ground with people who believe differently than you. You want to find a way to just leverage where someone is and what they believe and their feelings so that they'll listen to you and gain a hearing with them. Paul decides he's going to use their culture and their idolatry to start a conversation. They're religious, so is he. They're interested in spiritual things, so is he. They talk about what they believe about God. Hey, I've got some beliefs. I'll be happy to share with you about what I believe about God. Now, he's already listened to them. He's already learned about them. And now he's wanting to have a chance to say something to them, and they give him that opportunity. Find common ground with those who believe differently than you. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way... You are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I love that. Now just pause there for a moment. Paul's given the chance to dialogue about Jesus. And he doesn't insult these people. He just finds common ground with them. Hey, I see you're very religious. And they would have, yes, yes, we are. Absolutely, we're very religious. And he said, in fact, as I was walking through the city, I, I noticed that you have a lot of idols, and they're named, and they're inscribed to their God. They're a picture or image of their God. But I did notice this one idol. And when I looked at the inscription, it just said, to the unknown God. That reminds me of, Someone asking Elvis Presley once, why do you wear a cross and a star of David around your neck? And Elvis said, I don't want to miss heaven on a technicality. And, and maybe that's how the Athenians felt. The Athenians had put up all of these uh, idols to the Greek pantheon of gods, and yet they're worried. What if we missed one? What if there's one we don't really know? And then if that God gets offended that we don't know him or we've ignored him, he could kill our crops, uh, he could hurt our economy, and someone comes up with a bright idea, let's just put an idol up to the unknown God. That way he'll know this was his. We didn't slight him. And Paul uses that as an illustration. You've admitted there's some things you don't know. I'm here to tell you who this unknown God is. You're right. There's a God you don't know. And I'm here to tell you who he is. 
several years ago, I had an opportunity to go to a, a um, business luncheon, and someone asked me would I give a little talk on integrity in business. And they said, they'll know you're a preacher, and they know you're the pastor of Fort Caroline Baptist Church, but it's not really a time to preach. It's not really, you know, some evangelistic moment. But, but don't shy away from sharing your testimony. And so I talked about my father starting his own construction company in the living room of our home and how that he wanted to found it on Christian principles and, and, and deal with integrity and how he handled his employees and his customers. And so we talked about integrity with your employees, integrity with your customers, integrity in your community, and even integrity at home. The movie Gladiator had recently come out, and I just I love that movie. And so I decided to use that as a leverage to kind of weave in my little testimony. I said, now, some of you have probably seen this movie Gladiator. I just saw it with my family, my wife. And you remember the opening scene when General Maximus is there rallying his troops to go and fight the Germanic horde? And he knows that some of his men will not come back from this battle alive. And you remember what he says? He's sitting there on horseback. His men are around him, and he says, men remember what we do in time echoes in eternity. And I said, in businessmen and women, I want you to know that what we do in time echoes in eternity. I believe that one day we will not only stand before our uh, board or our shareholders or we'll stand before our community, one day we're going to stand before God and give an account of how we've lived our life. And that's when I wove in my personal testimony of faith in Jesus. You see what I was doing? I was using a common experience, something they could relate to. Oh yeah, I've seen that movie. And I used it as a bridge to get them to the gospel. That's all Paul's doing. That's why sometimes when you come here, you may hear the lyrics of a secular song or I'll quote some movie dialogue. Um, Mark Burton and I, Mark's right here somewhere. He and I always love to talk about ways to relate the gospel in a way people can understand. I should put him on staff. He is the, he's good at coming up with those kind of conversations. That's all Paul was doing. I see you're very superstitious. I see you're very religious. You even have an idol to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. Just finding common ground. And then the fourth principle is this. Share the good news of Jesus in a way they can understand. Once you've been given the opportunity to open your mouth, make sure you're sharing the gospel and make sure you're sharing it in a way that they can understand. Using language and illustrations that they can relate to while still being true to the gospel. Look at uh, verse 24, I believe it is. He starts by talking about the greatness of God, how he is creator. This God that you don't know anything about is really the one true living God. And he shares with them about the greatness of God and how he is creator. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Paul says, you guys are worshiping all of these gods that you created with your own hands. Don't you see? This is wrong. This is backwards. The truth is there's only one God, and he created you, and he created everything in the world. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And if he created you, you can't create him. These are not the real gods. There's only one, and he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And then he points them to the goodness of God. You see that in verse 25. Because God is not only creator, he is provider. 
Paul writes, or Paul states, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul says, I see that you not only erect these temples and these idols, but your priest and your, your followers bring money and dedicate it to these idols, and you bring wine, and you pour it out as a libation before the idol, and you bring food. Listen, the one true living God is not only your creator, he is your provider. He sustains you. He is not sustained by you. He gives everything to you. He is not dependent on you. As a matter of fact, God is not dependent on you. You are dependent on God for everything you have, including the very breath in your body. You see what Paul's doing? He's talking to them about this unknown God that they have been talking about. And then he moves on and talks to them about the government of God. He is not only creator and provider, he is ruler. You see that in verses 26 through 29. Verses 26 through 29 says, and he, this is God, and he made from one man, now he's referring to Adam, the first man, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. He's saying, God is ruler, and you think that you're in charge of your God and you're in charge of his temple and you're in charge of the statue and you're in charge of his worship. Actually, he's in charge. He's the ruler of all. He's even the one who established human government. And from one man, every person and every nation sprang. Now, the reason Paul says that is the Athenians felt that they were better than all other peoples. They felt that the Athenian people were a superior race than all other people. They were more educated, more cultured, more religious, and everyone aspired to be like the Athenians. The Athenians never aspired to be like anyone else. And Paul cuts the root of any racial supremacy whatsoever by saying, we all came from the same man, Adam. White supremacy is antithetical to the gospel. Black supremacy, antithetical to the gospel. Asian supremacy, antithetical to the gospel. We all have the same blood flowing through our veins that we trace back to one person. That's what Paul is saying. Amen? Amen. By the way, that's still needed to be heard today uh, in our culture today. And then he goes on in verse 27 and tells us, that they, talking about the people of these nations, all people of the earth, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Paul's saying this is a personal God who wants a personal relationship with every single person. Your false religions are not going to lead you there. You're like a blind man groping in the darkness. But God, the real God, the one true living God, is actually not far from you. Then he quotes two pagan poets. I can't believe Ricky quoted a movie in church. I can't believe they quoted a song, a secular song in church. Hey, Paul quoted pagans, and it's in the Bible. Look at the first one. He quotes a, a Greek philosopher named Epimenides from about the 6th or 7th century B.C. In him we live and move and have our being. That no matter where you go, you can't run from God. 
We live in the universe God created. In him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, now he's about to quote um, Aratus from uh, about the 3rd century B.C., for we are indeed his offspring. Paul's just using illustrations they can relate to, quotes they can relate to, to say the government of God is he is the ruler Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. These faults, these idols are false. They don't represent the one true living God. God created us. We don't get to create God. That's not the way it works. And then he talks to us about the grace of God, that God is Savior. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. God has not passed judgment on this sin of idolatry, this sin of rejecting the one true living God, this sin of not worshiping the God who created us, but creating a God and worshiping that instead. God's not passed judgment yet. In fact, God has overlooked these times of ignorance. But now, Paul says, right now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. means to have a change of mind. means to change direction. To repent Why should I repent of this sin of idolatry and put my faith in this one true living God? Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now Paul goes from talking about the man Adam to the man Jesus Christ. Now this is a synopsis of Paul's sermon. This is not the whole sermon. I could have read Paul's sermon without pausing and commentary, and it would have taken me less than two minutes. No good preacher can do that, I promise you. That was not the just, this is not the totality of his sermon. This is the gist of his sermon that Luke, the historian, is recording for us in the book of Acts. But Paul's talking about Jesus. You see what he did? He built a bridge from the culture. You're very religious. There's a God you say you don't know. I'm going to tell you who he is. And he takes them right to the bloody cross of Jesus and to the empty tomb of Jesus and says, one day this Jesus who died for your sin on the cross, who rose from the dead, will come again and he will judge the world. And it will be judged in righteousness, but it will be judged nonetheless. So today you need to get right with this God so that you don't have to be judged by him for your sin when he comes back Verse 31 ends this sermon. And that leads us to this fifth and final principle of engaging the culture. And that is once you've shared the gospel, leave the results to God. You and I can't save people. We can't argue people into heaven. We can't badger people. And listen, you're never going to win somebody by being rude to them on social media and flaming people with ugly comments. You just share the gospel, share the truth, share how Jesus has changed your life, share the evidence of the gospel through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and leave the results to God. Look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. You might want to write in the margin of your Bible, LOL. (laughs) Literally, the word mocked in Greek means they laughed out loud. They're going, what? Resurrection of the dead? Don't you know there's no such thing as life after death? No. So some of them are laughing at him. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Listen, that's a win when someone comes to our church and they hear the gospel, even though they don't believe it the first time. If they're saying, 
You know, I didn't get all that, but I want to go back next Sunday. That's a win. And these people say, but you know, I'll hear you again about this. Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and, what's the word? Believed. Some did believe in Jesus. Some did become followers of Jesus, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The gospel can still change people's lives. But as a church and as an individual Christian, we must be willing to build a bridge from culture to the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. We're willing to change methods, music, personal preferences, dress style, translations, whatever it takes, but we'll never change the message, the gospel of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Will you do that? Will you make that personal commitment? God, would you help me to build a bridge from my friend, from my neighbor, from my coworker, to my family member, from where they are, and let me share the gospel with them in a way they will understand. Will you make that commitment today? I promise you if you do, God will give you that opportunity to say a good word about him. And will you also say today, I joined this church in supporting this church in its efforts to reach even one more person with this good news of Jesus. I'm going to invite our mission team to come up because as a part of our commitment today, they're going to flesh out for us what it means. Go ahead, you can start coming up. What it means to be willing to do whatever it takes short of sinning to reach one more person with the gospel. This group of church members are going to Pedigwav in Haiti. It's a community that is in need of God's love in practical, tangible ways and in need of the gospel. And we're sending this team out on your behalf as an expression of this church's desire and willingness to do whatever it takes to reach one more person with the gospel. I don't know if they're all on the stage, but we've got on the team Greg Barber. If you are on the team and I call your name, raise your hand. Greg Barber, Daniel Hobson, Jerry Joseph, Lisa Kivett, Tom O'Reilly, Chuck Pittman, Rich Pollock, Amber Schultz, John Schultz, Cherie Watson. Did I miss anybody? What a great team. Let's give God a hand for this team willing to go to Haiti. I just want us to have a moment of prayer. This will be a prayer for you and a prayer for them for us to apply what we've heard today from the book of Acts chapter 17. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this team and their willingness to follow you. Jesus, you're the one who stepped out of glory and came into this world and truly did whatever it took, even your death on a cross, so that we could be right with God. And Jesus, you said, go and make disciples of all nations. And this team wants to do just that. As they go, Father, to Pettiguav, I pray for your spiritual protection. I pray for an anointing of your spirit. I pray for the power of the gospel to be communicated. And Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would draw men and women and boys and girls unto yourself. Father, thank you for those who have prayed and will continue to pray for this team. Thank you for those who have partnered with them financially to make it possible for them to go. And thank you that no matter what part we play, that we are a team as a church in reaching the world for you. Thank you for this privilege. God, we pray in Jesus' name, the one who is the resurrection and the life. And all of God's people said, amen.